Chapter 6, A Parade for President Wilson. The idea was bold. Thousands of women for, from all over America would make their way to Washington, D.C. They'd march in a huge parade on the day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. So that would be like this time of the year because our new president's going to be inaugurated soon too. They would take their fight for equal rights straight to the nation's new president. Alice Paul spent eight weeks planning the parade and she had a lot of help. New York City activist Rosalie Gardner-Jones organized a group of women to walk all the way from New York to Washington, D.C. to get attention for the event. That might sound like a fun idea, but keep in mind it was in the middle of winter. The women set out in February with a plan to walk nearly 300 miles in 16 days. The long march began with just 16 women wearing long brown wool caps. They passed out leaflets and gave speeches along the way. More women joined them at each town they passed. Their long walk through the wind and snow did its job. It got attention. People started, people talked about the women. Newspapers wrote stories about them. And despite the awful winter, winter, winter weather, the women arrived in time for the parade on March 3rd, 1913. It took hours to get everyone lined up. A young woman named Inez Milholland led the parade dressed all in white and riding a horse named Gray Dawn that she had borrowed from a friend. Next came the amendment float with a model of the Liberty Bell and a big banner demanding a woman's suffrage amendment to the Constitution. The officers of NAWSA followed the float. Behind them came at least nine bands and 26 floats. Six golden chariots represented the first six states to give women the right to vote. And then came the, the women, thousands of them. They marched in groups representing their professions, their states and colleges. Some men and politicians marched too. The parade was a major accomplishment for women suffrage leaders. But like the rest of the movement, the event was marked by racism. Some of the parade organizers worried that white women wouldn't want to march alongside black women. They quietly discouraged black women's groups from participating. Black women who wanted to attend were told that they should march in their own group in the back. As you can imagine, black women thought that was pretty crummy invitation. Many decided to skip the parade and focus on their own work instead. But some marched anyway. Mary Church Terrell joined the women from newly formed, from the newly formed African-American sorority Delta Sigma Theta at Howard University. They marched in their own groups separate from the white college women. When Ida B. Wells Barnett found out that she was being told to march at the back of the parade, she was furious. No way she was gonna do that. Wells Barnett stepped back as if she were going to march where she was told, but when the parade started, she jumped into the middle with the rest of her Illinois group where she'd planned to march in the first place. Up to 8,000 women marched and around a half million people came out to watch. The parade started in front of the Capitol. At first, everyone went, went fine, everything went fine. For a while, the streets were clear and the crowds were polite. But soon the spectators, most of them white men, started harassing the women. They shouted at the women, spit at them, and pinched them as they marched by. Some even tore off the women's badges and ripped their clothes. Then the men blocked the street so the parade couldn't even continue. Why were the men so angry? The women weren't breaking any laws. It was perfectly legal for them to march and share their ideas. The First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees that people that right. But suddenly these men in the crowd were breaking the law to keep the women from exercising their rights. The women's path grew narrow. 
The parade stalled for over an hour. All the while, the crowd was growing louder and more dangerous. You're probably wondering why no one, no one arrested those men who were breaking the law. Why didn't someone call the police? The answer is because the police were already there. The women had a permit for the parade, so the city had officers on duty. Those officers were supposed to keep the peace and protect the women who were marching. Instead, witnesses said most of the officers just stood around and watched. There would be nothing like this if you women would all just stay at home. It was so bad that the United States Senate held a hearing later to figure out what had happened. I have never heard such vulgar, obscene, scrutulous, abusive language as was hurled at us that day by men and it was am and amused the police. Some people in the crowd tried to help the women who were being attacked. A group of college men tried to clear a path. Some Boy Scouts used their walking sticks to keep the spectators back, but the mob was huge. Federal troops had to be called in to get things under control. Finally, the, woman, the women could finish their parade. They wrapped up with a rally at the Continental Hall. The energy of that day continued into Woodrow Wilson's presidency. The women led groups to visit Wilson at the White House. They brought petitions. They raised money and started a weekly newspaper. This is called the suffragists. They kept pushing for that amendment to give women the right to vote. A little over a month after the March parade, the women held another one to mark the opening season of Congress. It ended with an amendment being formally reintroduced on the Capitol steps, the same suffrage amendment from 1878. The women hoped that this time, finally, their lawmakers would act on it. Making arguments with art. Cartooning was an important part of the women's suffrage movement in the 1900s. Rose O'Neill was a cartoonist who also created popular toys called the QP dolls. O'Neill got involved in the right for women's, for voting rights with her comics. An example of Rose O'Neill Coopy's doll comics supported women's suffrage. Nina Allender was another talented suffragist artist. She drew hundreds of cartoons for the suffragists. And that's the end of chapter six. I'm going to continue in this episode to read chapter seven called Listen Up White House. There was some progress after the 1913 parade in Washington, D.C. Two more states, Montana and Nevada, gave women the right to vote. And finally, the Senate voted on the women's suffrage amendment. It didn't pass, but at least that big parade got people talking. Alice Paul and her friends wanted them to talk more, so they came up with even bolder ideas to get attention for the amendment. They started heckling President Wilson during speeches, interrupting to ask questions in the middle of his talks. That might not have been polite, but people noticed. They talked about the women's tactics and wrote about them in the newspapers. Why won't you give women the right to vote? You might think that the older women in NAWSA would be excited about getting attention for their cause. They'd been fighting for so long, and now those young activists were really shaking things up. Yay, right? Nope, not so much. The older women were uncomfortable with how loud Paul and her supporters had become. It felt impolite, unladylike. They suggested to Alice Paul that she tone things down. That didn't go over very well. Paul didn't think the NAWSA women were being bold enough. She was tired of waiting for them to get things done. Eventually, Alice Paul and Lucy Burns got thrown out of NAWSA. They kept working with their own group, the Congressional Union for Women's Suffrage, to try to get the amendment, that amendment passed. Before long, they joined forces with another group out west, the Women's Party, which believed in the same kind of tactics. 
When the Congressional Union and the Women's Party merged, they called themselves the National Women's Party. They made plans to shake things up even more by taking their message straight to President Wilson. That January, they started picketing the White House. The picketers showed up with banners every day, no matter the weather. It was their daily reminder to President Wilson that American women still didn't have the right to vote. For the first few months, for, for the first few months, White House guards were polite to the picketers. Sometimes they were even friendly. But the more the women questioned the president, the tenser things became. It didn't help that just a few months after the pickets began, America went to war again. When the United States entered World War I, the quieter ladies of NAWSA took a break from lobbying for the amendment. They spent their time working for the war effort, just as they had in the Civil War. But Alice Paul didn't believe in taking breaks. Her National Women's Party kept picketing. Suffrages came from all over to help. Sometimes the picketers put Wilson's own words on their banners to show what a hypocrite he was, saying one thing but doing another. They pointed out the president was fighting for freedom in Europe without supporting women's rights at home. Some people were upset that women wouldn't stop protesting during the war. The anger came to a head in June of 1917 when, when the women picketed on a day Russian visitors were scheduled to visit the White House. Angry people in the crowd grabbed the women's banner and tore it up. The women came back the next day with a new banner. Men in the crowd destroyed that one too. It's against the law to steal other people's things and destroy them. Surely this must be part of the story when the police show up to arrest those men who stole the women's banners, right? Wrong. The police issued a warning, but not to the violent men from the crowd. They warned the women. Officers even threatened to arrest them if they didn't stop picketing. The women were be bewildered. They had been picketing for six months. The laws in America hadn't changed. Citizens still had the right to peacefully protest, and the women weren't doing anything different. The only thing that had changed was that men in the crowd had started attacking them. That warning didn't keep the picketers away. The next day, they showed up with their banners, just like always, and got arrested. They were released, but a few days later, more women were arrested. This time, they were brought before a judge. Unpatriotic. Fine. $25 each. While the women refused to pay, the judge sent them to spend three days in a district jail. Jail? Some people thought that would put an end to the picketing once or for all, but they obviously didn't know the suffrages very well. On Independence Day, the women were back in front of the White House with their banners, again, men in the crowd attacking them. Again, the police arrested the women, and again, they were sentenced to three days in jail. Stop bothering the president. Later that month, 16 women, some of which were grandmothers, were arrested and sent to a place called Oquan Workhouse in Virginia. It was known as a filthy prison where people were treated horribly. This time, the sentence wasn't three days, it was 60. People spoke up to complain about how unfair that was. The public outcry was so loud that President Wilson was forced to set the women free after three days. Can you guess what they did when they left the workhouse? They went right back to picketing. By mid-August, their banners were even more controversial. One referred to the president as Kaiser Wilson, suggesting that Wilson had more sympathy for Germans who couldn't vote than he did for American women. Men and boys tore the, tore the women's banners, their sashes, and even their clothes. They broke the banner poles and used them as weapons. When, when the women finally left, the mob followed them back to their headquarters and tried to storm the building. The women went inside and locked the door. Lucy Barnes showed up on the balcony defiant, holding the National Women's Party flag 
and the Kaiser banner. The crowd threw rotten eggs and fruit at her. They cheered for two men who climbed the building and ripped the banners away. Someone fired gunshots at the building and the bullets just missed hitting two women inside. The longer the women kept protesting, the harsher their punishments got. In October, police announced that anyone who picketed would be sentenced to six months in jail. You can probably guess by now that Alice Paul didn't stop. In fact, she led a group of picketers the very next day. It probably also doesn't surprise you to learn that the women were arrested. Paul and other suffragists, Rose Wislow, went on a hunger strike and they refused to eat as a way of pro to protest their treatment. The guards force-fed the women. They held each woman down and shoved a tube down their throat and poured a mixture of cold milk and raw eggs. Some were injured. The guards wouldn't let them see a doctor. The women weren't even allowed to use the bathroom. Lucy Barnes was worried about her friends, so she tried to check on them by calling, uh, calling everyone's name. The warden ordered her to stop. When she didn't, she had her sh she had her, he had her shackled to her cell door with her hands chained over her head for the rest of the night. That came to be known as the Night of Terror. The workhouse warden told one woman that his goal was to put an end to the protests, even if it cost the lives of some of the women, he said, and he said it probably would. Even after that awful night, the suffragists didn't give up. They staged another hunger strike, which led to more force feedings, and Rose Winslow smuggled a note out of the jail to let people know what it was like. I had nervous time of it gasping a long time afterward, and my stomach rejected during the process. The poor soul who fed me got liberally besprinkled during the process. So I think you know what, what happened. In other words, it was, an absolute it was absolutely terrible to be force fed, and the experience was pretty gross for the people doing the feeding too. Besprinkled is just a nice word for saying puked on. When the news got out, the public was horrified. It became clear that the prison's warden plan was backfiring. The suffragists weren't being silenced at all. They were getting more attention and more support. At the end of November, public sympathy for the women forced the government to simply let them go. By that time, the women were too weak and exhausted to stand, but their sacrifice had made a difference. Finally, President Wilson changed his mind, and in January 1918, he announced his support for the constitutional amendment giving women the right to vote. Now, with Wilson's support, the amendment felt like a real possibility. Suffrage Songs As the idea of women's suffrage became popular, the movement found its way into popular music. The 1917 White House pickets inspired a song that suffragists sang sometimes while they were protesting or sitting in jail. It was published in The Suffragist in November 1917 with a note that it should be sung to the tune of The Ballad of Captain Kidd, an old sailing song that goes like this. My name is William Kidd, as I sailed, as I sailed. My name is William Kidd, as I sailed. My name is William Kidd, God's law I did forbid, and most wickedly I did as I sailed, as I sailed. The Suffragist version was called the We Worried Woody Wood, a reference to President Woodrow Wilson. We worried Woody Wood as he stood, as he stood. We worried Woody Wood as he stood. Other verses went on a talk show, went on to talk, to talk about how women asked for the, for the vote, were sent to jail and received poor treatment there. We asked them for some air as we choked, as we choked. We asked them for some air as we choked. We asked them from some air, for some air as they threw us in a lair. They threw us in a lair, so we choked. The suffragists at home. 
Some of the suffragists, suffragists like Ida B. Wells, Barnett, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, and Lucy Stone were married and had children, but many others chose to remain single. Among them was Susan B. Anthony, who often complained that her fellow suffragist kids got in the way of their mission. Sometimes she'd come over to help out with Elizabeth Cady Stanton's seven kids so her friend could get some work done. Once, while Anthony was babysitting, the older Stanton boys threw their younger brother into the water with corks attached to his body to see if he would float. He didn't, so it's a good thing she was there. Other suffragists never got married but had long-term loving relationships with other women. Women weren't allowed to marry other women back then. That wasn't even talked about, but some suffragists lived with their partners. Sometimes these relationships were called Boston marriages. The term inspired by an 1886 novel, The Bostonians, about a romantic relationship between two wealthy women in Boston. The NAWSA president, Anna Howard Shaw, and Lucy Anthony, Susan B. Anthony's niece, had a relationship like this. They lived together, traveled together, and worked together fighting for women's rights. Carrie Chapman Catt had been married, but after her husband, George, died, she lived with her female partner, Molly Hay. When Cat died, she chose to be buried next to Molly, not George. Susan B. Anthony also had a close relationship with other women throughout her life, especially with fellow suffragist Anna Dickinson, with whom she'd exchanged many loving notes. These, women's didn't, these women didn't talk about their private lives much, except to other suffragists. They knew that many people wouldn't approve. But within the movement, they talked openly about their relationships and their decisions not to marry men. Some thought they got more work done that way. Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote a poem about that for Susan B. Anthony's 70th birthday. Better than to be any man's wife, she says, to the cause devote your life, because husbands may die or run away, but the suffrage movement is here to stay.